Good evening, welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, STR8 Talk English, on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, here to talk you through the plot of Jekyll and Hyde. Just so you know, because the lit exams have taken place now, exciting! I'm going to be dropping down to about one a week until things kick off again in September. Partly the reason I'm doing this is because, drum roll, amazing effects, that's me on my desk. I am writing the very first Straight Talking English book, which is 100% full context, exciting little facts, everything you need to know about Jekyll and Hyde. It will be following on with this podcast and it is so exciting. I am about a third of the way through right now. It will be dropping in August and I really hope you are as excited about it as I am because it is gonna be fab. Right, rolling on with our plot. So Stevenson starts us off by introducing our main character, Mr. Gabriel Utterson. He is a lawyer. He is the protagonist, the main character, we would argue. But he's also kind of the narrator, laying everything out for us. Because it happens mostly from his perspective. The narrative, that is, happens from his point of view for the most, well, I would say most of the first eight chapters or so of the book. Check out this description. He does not sound like someone I would want to be at a party with. Mr. Otterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, Something eminently human beaconed from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in the silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. Oh my God, he sounds like literally the most boring man in the world. And we can argue at this point he is representing the perfect repressed Victorian man. All about seriousness, very private, very business-like, everything is serious. So at this point we get introduced to his distant relative, Mr Enfield. Enfield is just as boring as Artson is, really even though they've been best mates for ages uh, all they do together is go on walks and they don't actually talk to each other during those walks they just just have them really um, honestly it sounds tedious it sounds like hell but one time they walk past a house and it's in a certain sinister block of a building it is a very creepy house Enfield says it reminds me of a story of something that happened to me. And Utterson goes, ooh, yeah. And then Enfield proceeds to tell him this story very, ca- very casually of what happened to him the other night. I was coming home from some place at the end of the world, about three o'clock of a black winter morning, and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. Street after street and all the folks asleep, street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church, till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens, and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten, who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the girl's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man, it was like some damned juggernaut. I gave a view hallo, took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, 
but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who'd turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor for whom she'd been sent put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary, of no particular age and colour, with a strong Edinburgh accent, and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next best. We told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in red-hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces, and there was the man in the middle with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too, I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. "'If you choose to make capital out of this accident,' said he, "'I'm naturally helpless. No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene,' says he. "'Name your figure.' Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out, but there was something about the lot of us that meant mischief, and at last he struck. The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door? Whipped out a key, went in, and presently came back with the matter of ten pounds in gold and a cheque for the balance at Coote's drawn payable to bearer, and signed with a name that I can't mention, though it's one of the points of my story. But it was a name at least very well known, and often printed. The figure was stiff, but the signature was good for more than that, if it was only genuine. All right, I'm going to come on to this when we talk about duality a little bit more. But the big question is, where was Enfield at 3am in Soho? It cannot have been somewhere good. We all know that if you run a night out in Soho and it's 3am, nothing good is going to happen at that point. I mean, you might go to the late night noodle shop. If you are really, really lucky, you might find somewhere selling chips and there's that Macca's at Tottenham Court Road. But nothing good is happening. Even though Enfield is as repressed as they come, he is doing bad stuff just as much as everyone else is. So after a lot of prodding and poking and Enfield saying, it is my policy not to ask questions. I hate asking questions. And it represents this whole uh, not in my backyard Victorian thing. My house is in order. I don't care about your house. It could be on fire, but as long as I'm doing well, that's fine. The lack of social awareness. After all of this, Enfield reveals that the person whose name it is on the bank account is none other than Mr. Henry Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, learned physician, friend of Utterson. Well, as much as anyone's a friend with anyone in this godforsaken play <laughs> play the novella i just assume everything's in a play at this point and intrigued by this in his capacity as a lawyer utterson looks at jekyll's will in his will jekyll reveals that if something happens to me everything is to be left to my good friend edward hyde all right thinks it thinks utterson He's being blackmailed. This ain't good. That evening, Mr. Otterson came home to his bachelor house in sombre spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday, when his meal was over, to sit close by the fire 
a volume of some dry divinity on his reading-desk, until the clock of the neighbouring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he took up a candle and went into his business room. There he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope as Dr. Jekyll's Will, and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holograph, for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend the least assistance in the making of it. It provided not only that, in the case of the decease of Henry Jekyll, M.D., D.C.L., L.L.D., F.R.S., etc., all his possessions were to pass into the hands of his friend and benefactor, Edward Hyde, but that in case of Dr. Jekyll's disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months, the said Edward Hyde should step into the said Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay and free from any burden or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore, it offended him, both as a lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life. Let's think about Mr. Utterson as a lawyer for a second, though. In relation to the title of this book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All right, case as in a legal case. We as the reader are put in this position of being the jury, being the spectators in this case. The way it's set out, this novella, with the letters at the end, it's almost like a series of exhibits that Utterson is putting before us. So we decide who is right who is wrong? We're in this position to form our own judgment about the events of the book. And I find that really fascinating. Because if we think back to season one, the poems that put us in a role are the ones that intrigued me quite a lot. And Stevenson is doing exactly the same thing. Anyway, back on track. Utterson decides he's not going to do anything about this information. Um, he's a terrible friend. He's just awful. But instead, he goes to have dinner with his friend, Mr. Hasty Lanyon. Dr. Lanyon. Dr. Lanyon reveals that Jekyll is very, very weird. And they have not spoken for a while. With that, he blew out his candle, put on a greatcoat, and set forth in the direction of Cavendish Square, that citadel of medicine, where his friend, the great Dr. Lanyon, had his house and received his crowding patience. If anyone knows, it will be Lanyon, he had thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining-room where Dr. Lanyon sat alone over his wine. He was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman, with a shock of hair prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. At sight of Mr. Utterson, he sprang up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The geniality, as was the way of the man, was somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling, for these two were old friends, old mates both at school and college, both thorough respecters of themselves and of each other, and, what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up to the subject which so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. "'I suppose, Lanyon,' he said, "'you and I must be the two oldest friends that Henry Jekyll has.' "'I wish the friends were younger,' chuckled Dr. Lanyon. "'But I suppose we are. And what of that? I see little of him now.' "'Indeed,' said Utterson, "'I thought you had a bond of common interest.' "'We had,' was the reply. "'But it is more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. "'He began to go wrong, wrong in the mind. "'And though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him, "'for old sake's sake, as they say, 
I see and have seen devilish little of the man. Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple, would have estranged Damon and Pythias. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of relief to Mr. Utterson. They have only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passions, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, it is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend a few seconds to recover his composure, and then approached the question he had come to put. "'Did you ever come across a protégé of his, one Hyde?' he asked. "'Hyde?' repeated Lanyon. "'No, never heard of him. Since my time.' After getting this information off of Lanyon, Utterson cannot resist indulging his curiosity— and full-on decides to stalk Mr. Hyde. In the book, he literally waits outside Hyde's house, and if that is not full-on stalker, I do know what is. He finally finds and meets Edward Hyde for himself. If he be Mr. Hyde, he had thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. By ten o'clock, when the shops were closed, the by-street was very solitary, and, in spite of the low growl of London from all around, very silent. Small sounds carried far, Domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway, and the rumour of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time. Mr. Otterson had been some minutes at his post, when he was aware of an odd, light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person while he is still a great way off, suddenly spring out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet his attention had never before been so sharply and decisively arrested, and it was with a strong superstitious prevision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer, and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at that distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came, he drew a key from his pocket like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrank back with a hissing intake of the breath, but his fear was only momentary, and though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That is my name. What do you want? "'I see you are going in,' returned the lawyer. "'I'm an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Utterson of Gaunt Street. "'You must have heard my name, and meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me.' "'You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is from home,' replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. "'And then suddenly, but still without looking up, "'How do you know me?' he asked. "'On your side,' said Mr. Utterson, "'Will you do me a favour? "'With pleasure,' replied the other. "'What shall it be?' "'Will you let me see your face?' said the lawyer. "'Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, "'and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, "'fronted about with an air of defiance, "'and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. "'Now I shall know you again,' said Mr. Utterson. "'It may be useful.' "'Yes,' returned Mr. Hyde. "'It is as well we have met, and apropos you should have my address.' And he gave a number of a street in Soho. "'Good God!' thought Mr. Utterson. "'Can he too have been thinking of the will?' 
but he kept his feelings to himself, and only grunted in acknowledgment of the address. "'And now,' said the other, "'how do you know me?' "'By description,' was the reply. "'Whose description?' "'We have common friends,' said Mr. Utterson. "'Common friends,' uttered Mr. Hyde a little hoarsely. "'Who are they?' "'Jekyll, for instance,' said the lawyer. "'He never told you!' cried Mr. Hyde, with a flush of anger. "'I did not think you would have lied.' "'Come,' said Mr. Utterson, "'that is not fitting language.' The other snarled aloud with a savage laugh, and the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disquietude. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two, and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile, he had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. "'There must be something else,' said the perplexed gentleman. "'There is something more if I could find a name for it. "'God bless me, the man seems hardly human. "'Something troglodytic, shall we say. "'Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? "'Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul "'that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? "'The last, I think. "'For, oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll!' If ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. And we can conclude that officially Mr. Hyde is creepy as. Otterson gets a bit worried about Jekyll. He goes round to Jekyll's house and the very enterprising butler, Poole, reveals that Hyde has a key to Jekyll's house. Once again, Otterson does nothing about this information. But this is another book that could be so easily solved if people just spoke to each other. But a bit later on, Jekyll meets up with Utterson, and Jekyll's main information is look after Hyde if I die. Utterson still get a little bit suspicious, but also does nothing about it. The action skips forward a little bit. A few months after, there is a horrific murder of the fantastically named Sir Danvers Carew. Nearly a year later, in the month of October 18-something, London was startled by a crime of singular ferocity and rendered all the more notable by the high position of the victim. The details were few and startling, a maidservant, living alone in a house not far from the river, had gone upstairs to bed about eleven. Although a fog rolled over the city in the small hours, the early part of the night was cloudless, and the lane, which the maid's window overlooked, was brilliantly lit by the full moon. It seems she was romantically given, for she sat down upon her box, which stood immediately under the window, and fell into a dream of musing. Never, she used to say with streaming tears, when she narrated the experience, never had she felt more at peace with all men, or thought more kindly of the world. And as she so sat, she became aware of an aged and beautiful gentleman, with white hair, drawing near along the lane, and advancing to meet him, another, and very small gentlemen, to whom at first she paid less attention. When they had come within speech, which was just under the maid's eyes, the older man bowed 
and accosted the other with a very pretty manner of politeness. It did not seem as if the subject of his address were of great importance. Indeed, from his pointing, it sometimes appeared as if he were only inquiring his way. But the moon shone on his face as he spoke, and the girl was pleased to watch it. It seemed to breathe such an innocent and old-world kindness of disposition, yet with something high, too, as of a well-founded self-content. Presently her eye wandered to the other, and she was surprised to recognize in him a certain Mr. Hyde, who had once visited her master, and for whom she had conceived a dislike. He had in his hand a heavy cane, with which he was trifling, but he answered never a word, and seemed to listen with an ill-contained impatience. Then all of a sudden he broke out in a great flame of anger, stamping with his foot, brandishing the cane, and carrying on, as the maid described it, like a madman. The old gentleman took a step back, with the air of one very much surprised and a trifle hurt, and at that Mr. Hyde broke out of all bounds, and clubbed him to the earth. And next moment, with ape-like fury, he was trampling his victim underfoot, and hailing down a storm of blows, under which the bones were audibly shattered, and the body jumped upon the roadway. At the horror of these sights and sounds, the maid fainted. Just by a very convenient coincidence, Sir Danvers Carew had a letter addressed to Utterson in his pocket. The police arrive, they call Utterson, he gets there. He notices the cane, the fashionable walking stick that has been used to beat Sir Danvers Carew to death, is actually one that belongs to Henry Jekyll. It's clear from the description that it is Mr Hyde who's killed him. Utterson immediately tells the police they go to Hyde's house, he isn't at home, and the police do nothing about it because it's Victorian times and Hyde disappears, and Ripper Street gave me a really, really misleading impression of what Victorian policing was like. A bit later on in time, Lanyon and Utterson meet up to have dinner, and Lanyon says, I never, ever, ever want to see Jekyll again. He is the worst. All right, again, Utterson does nothing about this. Okay, I get that you're oppressed, but at this point... I seriously think he needs to talk to someone like a professional. Not like a weird Freudian one. We're going to talk about Freud in the next couple of episodes. But like just someone. Someone to talk to. Anyway, my view's out of this. Lanyon dies, by the way. He dies. And a bit later, I just keep... I can't remember the time scale of this book because it jumps forward by months and months and months. But anyway, things die down. Hyde isn't cool. You can tell which episodes I don't work from a very strict script, can't ya? <laughs> Utterson and Enfield are going on one of their walks and they happen to walk past Jekyll's house. They haven't seen him for a while and they're like, why don't we knock and see how he's doing? This does not go well. This is not the era where you can just knock on people's doors. The court was very cool and a little damp and full of premature twilight although the sky, high up overhead, was still bright with sunset. The middle one of the three windows was halfway open, and sitting close beside it, taking the air with an infinite sadness of mien, like some disconsolate prisoner, Utterson saw Dr. Jekyll. "'What, Jekyll!' he cried. "'I trust you are better!' "'I am very low, Utterson,' replied the doctor drearily, very low. It will not last long, thank God. You stay too much indoors, said the lawyer. You should be out, whipping up the circulation like Mr. Enfield and me. Uh, this is my cousin, Mr. Enfield, Dr. Jekyll. Come now, get your hat, and take a quick turn with us. You are very good, sighed the other. I should like to very much, but no, 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 it is quite impossible. I dare not. But indeed, Utterson, I am very glad to see you. This is really a great pleasure. I would ask you and Mr. Enfield up, but the place is really not fit. Why, then, said the lawyer, good-naturedly, 
The best thing we can do is to stay down here and speak with you from where we are. That is just what I was about to venture to propose, returned the doctor with a smile, but the words were hardly uttered before the smile was struck out of his face and succeeded by an expression of such abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below. They saw it but for a glimpse, for the window was instantly thrust down, but that glimpse had been sufficient, and they turned and left the court without a word. In silence, too, they traversed the by-street, and it was not until they had come into a neighbouring thoroughfare, where even upon a Sunday there were still some stirrings of life, that Mr. Utterson at last turned and looked at his companion. They were both pale, and there was an answering horror in their eyes. "'God forgive us! God forgive us!' said Mr. Utterson. But Mr. Enfield only nodded his head very seriously, and walked on once more in silence. After Lanyon's death, a dramatic envelope is remembered by Utterson and opened. In the case of Lanyon's death, it can only be opened by Utterson. And if Utterson dies first, it just needs to be burned. It's that scandalous. The letter is printed in full. In the novella, bringing in this sense of like being Exhibit A or something. This is the important bit from the letter. I cut out most of the rambling. It is a little bit long. But this is the climax, the peak of the drama, in which things begin to be revealed. Twelve o'clock had scarce rung out over London, ere the knocker sounded very gently on the door. I went myself at the summons, and found a small man crouching against the pillars of the portico. "'Are you come from Dr. Jekyll?' I asked. He told me yes, by a constrained gesture, and when I had bidden him enter, he did not obey me without a searching backward glance into the darkness of the square. There was a policeman not far off, advancing with his bull's-eye open, and at the sight I thought my visitor started and made greater haste. These particulars struck me, I confess, disagreeably, and as I followed him into the bright light of the consulting-room, I kept my hand ready on my weapon. Here at last I had a chance of clearly seeing him. I had never set eyes on him before, so much was certain. He was small, as I have said. I was struck besides with the shocking expression of his face, with his remarkable combination of great muscular activity and great apparent debility of constitution, and, last but not least, with the odd subjective disturbance caused by his neighbourhood. This bore some resemblance to incipient rigour, and was accompanied by a marked sinking of the pulse. At the time I set it down to some idiosyncratic personal distaste, and merely wondered at the acuteness of the symptoms, but I have since had reason to believe the cause to lie much deeper in the nature of man, and to turn on some nobler hinge than the principle of hatred. This person, who had thus, from the first moment of his entrance, struck in me what I can only describe as a disgustful curiosity, was dressed in a fashion that would have made an ordinary person laughable. His clothes, that is to say, although they were of rich and sober fabric, were enormously too large for him in every measurement, the trousers hanging on his legs and rolled up to keep them from the ground, the waist of the coat below his haunches, and the collar sprawling wide over his shoulders. Strange to relate, this ludicrous accoutrement was far from moving me to laughter. Rather, as there was something abnormal and misbegotten in the very essence of the creature that now faced me, something seizing, surprising, and revolting, 
this fresh disparity seemed but to fit in with and to reinforce it, so that to my interest in the man's nature and character there was added a curiosity as to his origin, his life, his fortune and status in the world. These observations, though they have taken so great a space to be set down, were yet the work of a few seconds. My visitor was, indeed, on fire with sombre excitement. "'Have you got it?' he cried. "'Have you got it?' And so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me. I put him back, conscious at his touch of a certain icy pang along my blood. "'Come, sir,' said I, "'ye forget that I have not yet the pleasure of your acquaintance. "'Be seated, if you please.' and I showed him an example, and sat down myself in my customary seat, and with as fair an imitation of my ordinary manner to a patient, as the lateness of the house, the nature of my preoccupations, and the horror I had of my visitor, would suffer me to muster. "'I beg your pardon, Dr. Lanyon,' he replied civilly enough. "'What you say is very well founded.' and my impatience has shown its heels to my politeness. I come here at the instance of your colleague, Dr. Henry Jekyll, on a piece of business of some moment, and I understood. He paused and put his hand to his throat, and I could see, in spite of his collected manner, that he was wrestling against the approaches of the hysteria. I understood a draw but here I took pity on my visitor's suspense, and some perhaps on my own growing curiosity. "'There it is, sir,' said I, pointing to the drawer where it lay on the floor behind a table, and still covered with the sheet. He sprang to it, and then paused, and laid his hand upon his heart. I could hear his teeth grate with the convulsive action of his jaws, and his face was so ghastly to see that I grew alarmed both for his life and reason. "'Compose yourself,' said I. He turned a dreadful smile to me, and as if with the decision of despair, plucked away the sheet. At sight of the contents he uttered one loud sob of such immense relief that I sat petrified and the next moment, in a voice that was already fairly well under control, "'Have you a graduated glass?' he asked. I rose from my place with something of an effort, and gave him what he asked. He thanked me with a smiling nod, measured out a few minims of the red tincture, and added one of the powders. The mixture, which was at first of a reddish hue, began, in proportion as the crystals melted, to brighten in colour, to effervesce audibly, and to throw off small fumes of vapour. Suddenly, and at the same moment, the ebullition ceased, and the compound changed to a dark purple, which faded again more slowly to a watery green. My visitor, who had watched those metamorphoses with a keen eye, smiled, set down the glass upon the table, and then turned and looked upon me with an air of scrutiny. "'And now,' said he, "'to settle what remains. Will you be wise? Will you be guided? Will you suffer me to take this glass in my hand and to go forth from your house without further parley?' Or has the greed of curiosity too much command of you? Think before you answer, for it shall be done as you decide. As you decide, you shall be left as you were before, and neither richer nor wiser, unless the sense of service rendered to a man in mortal distress may be counted as a kind of riches of the soul. Or if you shall so prefer to choose, a new province of knowledge and new avenues to fame and power shall be laid open to you here in this room upon this instant. 
and your sight shall be blasted by a prodigy to stagger the unbelief of Satan. Sir, said I, affecting a coolness that I was far from truly possessing, you speak enigmas, and you will perhaps not wonder that I hear you with no very strong impression of belief. But I have gone too far in the way of inexplicable services to pause before I see the end. It is well, replied my visitor. Lanyon, you remember your vows. What follows is under the seal of our profession. And now, you who have so long been bound to the most narrow and material views, you who have denied the virtue of transcendental medicine, you who have derided your superiors, behold. He put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as I looked, there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter. And the next moment I had sprung to my feet and leaped back against the wall, my arm raised to shield me from that prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh God! I screamed, and oh God! Again and again, for there, before my eyes, pale and shaken and half-fainting and groping before him with his hands like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. What he told me in the next hour, I cannot bring my mind to set on paper. I saw what I saw, I heard what I heard, and my soul sickened at it. And yet now, when that sight is faded from my eyes, I ask myself if I believe it, and I cannot answer. My life is shaken to its roots. Sleep has left me. The deadliest terror sits by me at all hours of the day and night. I feel that my days are numbered and that I must die. And yet I shall die incredulous. As for the moral turpitude that man unveiled to me, even with tears of penitence, I cannot, even in memory, dwell on it without a start of horror. I will say but one thing, Utterson, and that, if you can bring your mind to credit it, will be more than enough. The creature who crept into my house that night was, on Jekyll's own confession, known by the name of Hyde, and hunted for in every corner of the land as the murderer of Karu. However, the plot is not fully done yet before the letter is read to us as the audience. Utterson is relaxing at home and Poole, the butler, runs up to him and says something's happened with Jekyll. He's been locked in his basement for two weeks. Come and help. After much humming and whoring and hum, Utterson gets his act together. They run over to Jekyll's house. They break into the gothic basement he just so happens to have under his house. I can relate, to be honest. I feel like my attic is uh, kind of like the one from The Grudge. And if I leave my bathroom window open, like the flap opens. But anyway, I can relate to this gothic basement. I would go for that. And they find Hyde dead on the floor. But how has this happened? Where is Jekyll? Dun, dun, dun. And we ping into that letter you just heard. And after that, we ping into the very, very long final chapter called Henry Jekyll's Final Statement of the Case. When I was going through the clips for this bit, it was literally an hour longer than everything else in the audiobook put together. And I was like, 
oh my days the nice people who are listening to this podcast are not even going to listen to this for an hour i can't listen to it for an hour so it's going to be a little bit of me in and out of it it is very long by the way audiobook is coming from the librivox project librivox absolutely amazing copyright free recordings of classic books let's launch straight into henry jekyll's statement of the case I was born in the year 18-something, to a large fortune, endowed besides with excellent parts, inclined by nature to industry, fond of the respect of the wise and good among my fellow men, and thus, as might have been supposed, with every guarantee of an honourable and distinguished future. And indeed the worst of my faults was a certain impatient gaiety of disposition, such as has made the happiness of many, but such as I found it hard to reconcile with my imperious desire to carry my head high, and wear a more than commonly grave countenance before the public. Hence it came about that I concealed my pleasures, and that when I reached years of reflection, and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. After that, Jekyll finally dishes the dirt, in his opinion, about what it is that he's been doing wrong. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. I just want to point out here that gaiety of disposition, quote-unquote, can literally mean prostitution or sex work. For example, a brothel would be called a gay house in 19th century terminology. I'm going to come on to this a little bit more when I analyse Jekyll, but we can very much argue that what he's trying to repress is physical desire for others. He, luckily enough, has the medical and chemical powers to make a powder which he believes will separate his good and bad selves. He decides to take the powder and experiment upon himself. The most racking pangs succeeded, a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and, from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill-race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself, at the first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original sin, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and, in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. As with everyone in this book, after getting over the transformation initially, Jekyll stops to have a little think for a while about what this might mean. All must have been otherwise, and from these agonies of death and birth I had come forth an angel instead of a fiend. The drug had no discriminating action, it was neither diabolical nor divine. It but shook the doors of the prison-house of my disposition, and like the captives of Philippi, that which stood within ran forth. At that time my virtue slumbered, my evil, kept awake by ambition, 
was alert and swift to seize the occasion, and the thing that was projected was Edward Hyde. Hence, although I had now two characters as well as two appearances, one was wholly evil, and the other was still the old Henry Jekyll, that incongruous compound of whose reformation and improvement I had already learned to despair. At the start, he kind of likes being Hyde. It's quite a lot of fun being younger, just being this creature of instinct. He can do whatever he wants. He gets his house in Soho, has a pretty lovely time. But when he stops to think, again, because no one in this book seems to do anything except randomly forget things, then randomly think about things for time, he starts getting to thinking about what does this mean about this dual nature which I have created with my two identities? His every act and thought centred on self. Drinking pleasure with bestial avidity from any degree of torture to another. Relentless like a man of stone. Henry Jekyll stood at times aghast before the acts of Edward Hyde. But the situation was apart from ordinary laws and insidiously relaxed the grasp of conscience. So yeah, after all this soul-searching, Jekyll comes to the conclusion, maybe it's all right, maybe everything's fine. But then he hears about the murder of Sir Danvers Carew, and decides, no more hide, I'm going to sort myself out. Everything is awesome. The next day came the news that the murder had been overlooked that the guilt of Hyde was patent to the world, and that the victim was a man high in public estimation. It was not only a crime, it had been a tragic folly. I think I was glad to know it. I think I was glad to have my better impulses thus buttressed and guarded by the terrors of the scaffold. Jekyll was now my city of refuge, let but Hyde peep out an instant, and the hands of all men would be raised to take and slay him. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know yourself how earnestly in the last months of last year I laboured to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others— and that the days passed quietly, almost happily for myself. Nor can I truly say that I wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely. But I was still cursed with my duality of purpose. And as the first edge of my penitence wore off, the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license. Despite the fact that Jekyll is back on the straight and narrow, there is many a slip, twixt cup and lip, as my mother would say, and he starts changing into Hyde. He'll go to bed as Jekyll, and then he'll be Hyde. He'll just randomly hide it up out of nowhere. And that's what happened when Lanyon and Enfield went to meet him at his window, he was starting to full hide. We've had some gaps in our narrative coming from Utterson because he doesn't know everything that's going on. Jekyll does, however. In the in-between bit, between what happened in Lanyon's letter and the desperate pull running to Utterson's door, there is, of course, a lot of drama. And with that, the final gap in the narrative is revealed. When I came to myself at Lanyon's, the horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. I do not know, it was at least but a drop in the sea to the abhorrence with which I looked back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows. It was the horror of being Hyde that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. 
I slept after the prostration of the day with a stringent and profound slumber which not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I awoke in the morning shaken, weakened but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of the brute that slept within me, and I had not of course forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before. But I was once more at home, in my own house and close to my drugs, and gratitude for my escape shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivalled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change, and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing with the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double dose to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours after, as I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be readministered. In short, from that day forth, it seemed only by a great effort, as of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug, that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night, I would be taken with the premonitory shudder, above all if I slept or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Under the strain of this continually impending doom, and by the sleeplessness to which I now condemned myself, I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became, in my own person, a creature eaten up and emptied by fever, languidly weak both in body and mind, and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked, into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, and a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seemed to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll, and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death. And beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde, for all his energies of life, as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape would usurp the offices of life, and this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to his subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity, he loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen, and he resented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence the ape-like tricks that he would play me, 
scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father. And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of life is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the abjection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. It is useless, and the time awfully fails me, to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments, let that suffice. And yet even to these, habit brought, no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul, a certain acquiescence of despair, and my punishment might have gone on for years, but for the last calamity which has now fallen, and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature. My provision of the salt, which had never been renewed since the date of the first experiment, began to run low. I sent out for a fresh supply, and mixed the draught. The ebullition followed, and the first change of colour, not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficacy. You will learn from Paul how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain, and I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that unknown impurity which lent efficacy to the draught. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing this statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time, short of a miracle, that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts, or see his own face, now how sadly altered in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writing to an end, for if my narrative has hitherto escaped destruction, it has been by a combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it in pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action of his ape-like spite. And indeed the doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him. Half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re-indue that hated personality, I know how I shall sit shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue with the most strained and fear-struck ecstasy of listening to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold, or will he find the courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows, I am careless. This is my true hour of death, and what is to follow concerns another than myself. Here, then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. So there you have it, more or less. Jekyll was forced to complete suicide to deal with the fact that Hyde was taking over and his fear that one day he may be sent to the gallows for the terrible murder he has committed. The narrative of this book is really interesting because as I mentioned about it being laid out like Exhibit A and Exhibit B, the direct narrative actually finished two chapters ago with Utterson trying to work out who had committed the murder. We now have these two bits of evidence almost as appendices, like in Handmaid's Tale, where we think the narrative ends one way, 
but actually there's a frame story that puts it in a different line and that's Stevenson's prerogative that's what he's decided to do the whole thing putting us in the position of judge removing us from the action is what makes us be in this authoritarian mindset of trying to decide was it right was it wrong what Jekyll did I mean I was going to say hide there but I'm fairly sure trampling someone and murdering an MP is bad I mean I'll check but I'm 90% sure it's bad and that is where we leave our story on this very very ambiguous note next episode i shall return and we will talk about mr edward hyde he of the low-hanging brow ape-like fury displeasing smile with satan's signature right across his face str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com remember drop the bombshell earlier i'm writing a book so keep your eyes and ears open it will be on amazon kindle paperback get your hype going now and i'll speak to you very very soon about mr edward hyde